This is episode 35 of Cinescope, and this day does not belong to one man, but to all. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today are Gabriel Green and James Hamrick to conclude our discussion on Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy with The Return of the King. How are you guys doing tonight? Very well. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I'm doing really good. Awesome. I'm excited to round this thing off. It's been a couple months in the making at this point, and... uh I've kept the box set sitting out near my Blu-ray player this whole time. <laughs> At first, I was going to just marathon the whole three, but then we decided, hey, let's just talk about all three over however many episodes. And so here we are to finish that off. So in case everybody hasn't listened to the last couple episodes for some reason, how about you guys just remind us who you are, what you do, tell us about your podcast, etc. So James, how about you kickstart us this time? Okay. So we met across a movie Facebook discussion group. And we had both noticed that we we ended up liking a lot of movies that wasn't really well received. Initially, it started with discussions on The Hobbit and um, the DCU films, particularly Batman vs. Superman. And so, because of that, we kind of decided if we were to ever do a podcast, it'd be fun to just dedicate one to defending movies that we don't think get the love they deserve. And so... It kind of started as a joke, but we ended up taking it seriously. And so now, like, I think like 29 episodes later, we're still talking about the movies that we like. Awesome. What about you, Gabriel? Anything to add? Uh, not a lot about the podcast, but just, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And we got to have uh, you on a couple of times, and that was always really fun to have. And Yeah, including recently, you and I talked about the newest Beauty and the Beast movie. Yeah. Well, cool. I guess let's go ahead and start heading that way towards the discussion, because it's probably going to be a long one to maybe match the length of the movie. We'll see. <laughs> so just a reminder to everybody out there listening, go rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. It's a big help. helps us to grow the audience. Really, honestly, it, it's the best thing you could do to support the show, aside from sharing it with your friends and family. And while you're at it, drop by Underrated Podcast as well, so you can do the same for them and uh, help them out. Also, I want to remind everybody that Anchor is still a thing over here with Cinescope. I am talking every single day about movies in some capacity. The past couple of days, I've actually been posting an Anchor-exclusive review of Beauty and the Beast with another Anchor station host. So that was only available on Anchor. Uh, I might make it available somehow, somewhere else. But uh, just be sure to go download the app or go to the website. The link will be in the show notes and you can find Cinescope and listen to me talk about movies every day. And you can call in and I can post those and we can have a discussion in that way. So all that stuff aside, let's move on to our main discussion today over The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. You guys ready? Yep. Ready. Awesome. This movie was released on December 17th of 2003 in North America it was directed by Peter Jackson, once again, who directed the rest of the trilogy, The Hobbit Trilogy, The Frighteners, King Kong, and The Lovely Bones. The script was written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Jackson, and was based on The Return of the King by original author J.R.R. Tolkien. The music is composed by Howard Shore, who also composed the scores for The Fly, Big, Silence of the Lambs, Mrs. Doubtfire, Seven, the rest of the trilogy, The Aviator, The Departed, the Twilight Saga Eclipse, Hugo, The Hobbit Trilogy, and Spotlight. 
The movie stars Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Ian McKellen, Viggo Mortensen, Andy Serkis, Bernard Hill, John Noble, John Rhys Davies, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Miranda Otto, David Wenham, Carl Urban, Kate Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, Liv Tyler, and Christopher Lee. So all the actors, all, all of the actors, everybody is in this movie, and uh, I just read all of them. <laughs> so uh, as as we've been starting these off, as we always start off Cinescope, let's talk about our first experience with this movie, which I have a feeling is probably pretty similar to what we've done for the last two. But just to go over it, Gabriel, how about you start us off? What was your first experience with The Return of the King? Uh, well, this was actually the second film I ever saw in a theater. Wow. So on that front, it's really special to me. I mean, this is definitely a theater kind of movie. So it was it was a, a very uh, fun experience. And then a couple of years later, we were like visiting my aunt for a week or so, and it was really boring. So I, I watched the extended edition, I think around four or five times over the course of a week. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just completely fell in love with uh, this film in particular. Um, I mean, I love them all, but uh, just something about this one kept me coming back over and over again, just besides the boredom. So this movie is uh, very special to me on on that level. Okay, what about you, James? Yeah, so for me, uh, at this point, you know, Fellowship of Two Towers had essentially cemented themselves as my favorite movies of all time, and I have it's I have a lot of specific memories of different moments leading up to that movie. Like I remember one of my older cousins coming over and saying, uh, you know, asking me if I was excited, like she because she knew that I was huge lord of the rings fan and i remember her saying like oh what are you gonna do now that this is the last one and for whatever reason at that moment that had never really crossed my mind the idea that once this hits theaters it's gonna be done and so i just remember this wave of sadness coming over me like oh no what am i gonna look forward to after this but my hype just kept building and building and building and my uh, my oldest sister who was in high school at the time she had seen the midnight premiere and I remember waiting super late for her to get back just so I could go and bug her and ask her every question I wanted to ask. Uh, and then I think a few days later, my parents took me. And it was my favorite as soon as it finished. And I th- I think it remains my favorite of the trilogy. I'm jealous of both of you because I have not seen any of these three movies in the theater. I, I don't need to go over the whole story again. But basically, my mindset as a kid was Harry Potter good, Lord of the Rings bad. Half right. <laughs> I, I, I've since evolved and realized that, hey, we can like all the things and that's okay. So Harry Potter good, Lord of the Rings good at this point. I'm looking forward, anxiously looking forward to a theatrical re-release so I can check them out. But anyways, at this point, I've only seen the theatrical cut of this film once. And I hadn't even seen that until I'd seen the extended edition two or three times first. So my primary experience with this movie is the extended edition. I I know a couple of the things that were added for this edition specifically, but I, I'd be hard pressed to sort of split them at this point because I'm so familiar with this edition in particular. I was impressed when I was looking up stats earlier that the theatrical cut of this film by itself is nearly three and a half hours long. I didn't think anybody had the stamina to sit that long in a theater for a single theatrical cut movie. No. The extended edition, as we know, is over four hours long. And so it was quite a marathon to watch earlier. But I I love the length. I think it's worth every second. And I think I agree with you guys. This is probably my favorite of the trilogy for for so, so many reasons. I mean, like the other two, I've always loved this movie from the very first second I I did watch it. I, I don't remember any particular reaction the first time specifically I watched it. I was in my sophomore year 
of college, I think, watched it in our dorm room. And again, it was the extended edition. I had marathoned the first two. So though I had seen the first two films sort of separately growing up in high school and early college, this is one that I consumed as part of the whole uh, rather than individually. And I, I think I walked away with stronger opinions on it because of that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was my first experience, and uh, I've always loved the movie, and it was the first time I'd watched it in a while going into this episode. And I've got to say this one in particular, I, I mentioned this in the Two Towers episode, that it made me a little bit weepy, but I think this one, I was just like an emotional basket case through so much of the movie. <laughs> So let, let's just go ahead and dive into the actual story. So what about the story here do you guys enjoy? Gabriel, how about you start us off? Um, well, yeah, as you were saying before, it, it, it's, it's the final chapter. It just all, all of the emotions are like up to 10 for like the majority of the film. So it's it's a very moving experience because, I mean, all these characters who you've come to know and love over the, over the previous two films are kind of coming into place and coming to their mm-hmm. own. And then everyone's coming together for this, you know, this one giant effort to defeat evil once and for all. So it's, it's a, a very classic story, but um, it's just told so well with so many wonderful characters, and then just the gigantic epic battles. It's just a, it's an exciting film, but it it also it has the heart to, to uh, make all these huge battles mean something, and each and every one of them is is just a, a whole emotional roller coaster on its own. What about you, James? One of the things that stands out about this movie for me is the entire thing has, it feels like it has this sense of urgency. Um, you know, as, as the troops of Rohan are being mustered and Theoden says, you know, I expected more. You just feel like this is what we've all been waiting for. Like people have to get into place. Armies are being amassed. This is, you know, it's the line from Gandalf from Two Towers being played out where he said the battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle Earth is about to begin. This whole movie, even there are some quieter moments and some moments of humor. But, you know, the tension between Frodo and Sam, Merry and Pippin being split up, uh, Ga- the drama between Gondor and Rohan, everything is just reaching a fever pitch. And so I feel like I'm on, even though I've seen it so many times, I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat throughout for like three and a half hours of this over four hour film so just the fact that it's so long and yet fully captivates me because of how serious everything feels that's one of the things that definitely stands out i agree with both of you um i think the stakes are definitely so much higher here you know the first two films were very much journey films and here at this point they're there they are at mordor they're right on its gate and everything is happening this is it's now or never in this film and I, I love the, the immediacy of the action. And speaking to the characters, you know, I read out all of those characters when going through the stats earlier because I don't know if I could have trimmed it down from there. Because every single character and actor who I mentioned means something very deeply to this film. And so the bulk of our discussion is going to be over characters. And I don't have a whole lot to say about the story specifically because most of that you can extrapolate from my character discussion. But just a few shots that stand out to me. I love the idea of Osgiliath as sort of a foreshadowing of Minas Tirith's future. I, that, it wasn't something that had occurred to me before. But when you look at both cities side by side, they are both like made of stone, right? And when you look at Osgiliath, it is basically ruins. It's a, they call it a city, but it's it seems 
fairly uninhabited at the point that we see it in this film and it falls so easily it it really sort of foreshadows in a way the the attack that we know is coming on Minas Tirith and the possible outcome if they were to fail and that was just something that sort of struck me when watching this was how similar the two cities are and the stakes that were at hand for the city of Minas Tirith itself and then the 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 visuals of the oliphants i thought held up extremely well they were for a film that was made in 2003 when cgi was still semi in its infancy the the oliphants were believably large and powerful and terrifying in a huge way they show up and they're all lined up and as soon as they get close to the rohirrim they are just pile driving everybody and sweeping from side and sweeping from side to side and I, I just tried to mimic them with my face and I moved away from my microphone. <laughs> so that didn't work out. But I think that the visuals in this film across the board, even the dead men of Dunharrow, right? The, the, the ghost army that Aragorn recruits for their help, they hold up extremely well to scrutiny, I think. The, the visuals just across the board are fantastic. And those are just the, the special effects. Even the, the cinematography has always been good. And I just love how well even 14 years later, geez, the, this movie holds up cinematically and in terms of visual effects. Yeah, like even though you can occasionally see the cracks, the way Jackson shoots it is so exciting and compelling that it, it all works. Even if you tell, yeah, I know that CGI, it's still an epic shot. And the whole, the whole film's like that. And, and as you said, most of the CGI does hold up very well. Like I, I completely forgot I was watching like CGI elephants. They, they look so real. Yeah, I think that CG holds up for the most part throughout the movie to today's standards, uh, especially the oliphants or mimicals, whichever you call them. Um, and the moment that you mention, to me, that is that's a standout moment for the movie for me as well. There's just something about as as soon as the two armies clash and the mimicals start bashing through this army of horses, it's one of those like visceral moments in any battle I've ever seen in a film. I'm glad that you brought that moment up. Everybody always raves about the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Two Towers, and it's fantastic. But then 80% of this movie, this movie in particular, is also War Saints, and I think it's just as captivating. And maybe even some, this isn't at all a criticism of Helm's Deep, but even somewhat easier to follow because it's daytime and you're able to see the action taking place on this sweeping plane rather than in this confined space. And th th those both have their strengths. Those settings both have their strengths. Um, but I just like the the sort of openness of this battle and you're able to see the the size of the armies as they compare against each other. And I, I just love how well Jackson directs action, especially war action. Yeah. The way it's shot is just beautiful. I, I still think one of my favorite shots of any film ever is when we're following the Nazgul on their dragons down the sides of uh, Minas Tirith. It's just, it epitomizes epic. Yeah. I, I had written that down. I wanted to mention it. It is, it's so I mean, what's happening is horrible, but it's so exhilarating just as they swoop between the towers and knocking down the uh, trebuchets. It's 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 insane. And then one other shot that I wanted to mention, and this is the smallest thing, but it's at the very end of the film when they're on their way back to the Shire and we get the, the map shot. It's the only map shot in this movie. And I love that it sort of hovers over the places that we have visited over the course of the trilogy in reverse order. So you, you see 
all the way back to Rivendell and Rohan and Bree and Weathertop. And we, we sort of go not in that order that I just listed, but in the reverse order that we saw it through the films. And I think it's just a lovely moment, a way to recap what has gone, what everybody has gone through. And we get the, the narration from, I think, Frodo, who's talking at that point in time, mm-hmm. as they travel back to the Shire and they're trying to adjust to being back to a normal life as best they can. And so that's just a simple shot that I, I really appreciated. Were there any anything else that falls under the category of story or cinematography or filmmaking in general, guys, that you want to mention? I did want to just mention the the ride of the Rohirrim. I think that might be my favorite scene from any movie ever. Just how, you know, all hope is lost in Minas Tirith and then the uh, they just come up on the hill with the sun behind them and Theoda gives the epic speech and they charge with the really uh, haunting violin music it's just it's base it's it's as perfect as cinema can get in my opinion i agree and then the the confidence with which they're riding forward and then all of a sudden the terror that you actually see in the eyes of the orcs and they start running that that is fantastic and the music you just mentioned the violins that's one of my favorite renditions of the rohirrim men of rohan theme that we hear throughout the trilogy and it, it, it's just the best Anything else? Something that this movie does incredibly well, in my opinion, is the way it uses music to capitalize on these, on the kind of scenes that we've been mentioning where the cinematography is amazing and everything happening in the story is amazing. The two moments that come to my mind is the moment where Frodo decides to keep the ring and he, you know, he says the ring is mine and he pulls it close and you just see, or you hear the choir swell up and the look of despair on Sam's face. That moment feels like a gut punch every time because I know he's going to refuse to drop the ring at first and it feels like almost all hope is lost at that moment even this day knowing what's going to happen and I just I think the music makes it that much better and then the other scene was it's it's at the black gate and Aragorn there's a lot of great speeches in this (laughs) uh and my favorite is from Aragorn at the black gate and I think one of my favorite moments from across the entire trilogy is, you know, when he stops and he turns around and he looks at him and he says, for Frodo. And then the music, once again, just swells up and Merry and Pippin are the first to charge and then the entire army is behind them and they just clash. It's a very similar moment to the Riders of Rohirrim moment, which I also think is amazing. But there, there's just something about the confidence that Aragorn has and the ability he has to inspire that same confidence in everyone else. And all of a sudden, this army that's much smaller is just running into like the very pit of the enemy. Uh, I just think it's a great moment. Yeah, since you mentioned it, I'll go ahead and mention a note that I had taken for the music section. When Aragorn says for Frodo and he charges in and Merry and Pippin are right on his tail, the I believe it's the fellowship theme that we hear at that moment. And the way I sort of interpreted that is, you know, the fellowship was created to accompany Frodo and the ring to Mordor to destroy it. That's That was the original purpose of the fellowship. And now here everybody is. Everybody is at Mordor. They're at the Black Gate. They're climbing the hills of Mount Doom. And so everybody is there accompanying Frodo with the ring to Mount Doom to destroy it. And so at that moment, everybody has become the Fellowship. And as Aragorn leads the charge, Merry and Pippin at his tail, the rest, Gandalf, Legolas, and Gimli right behind them, followed by the whole rest of the the company. And so everybody has become part of the fellowship at that point. And that was something that I thought was really well communicated with the music. 
I guess one last thing I wanted to mention about about how the filmmaking is is how Jackson grounds every one of these epic battles, intercuts them with these really wonderful, intimate moments between the characters. Like as as that battle is happening, we're having like Frodo and Sam just crawling up the mountain, like just holding each other, trying to encourage each other to go one more step. And it's the same with the Battle of Pelennor Fields. We keep flashing back to Merry and Eowyn or Gandalf and Pippin, just these moments of humanity that keep grounding the action so we never get bored or disinterested. There's always there's someone always someone there that we care about. That is uh something that I really care about too. You know, I like a good action scene. I think they can be a lot of fun, but there are definitely limits to my my attention span, I suppose. I'm not saying I'm short attention span, but you know, I'm going to get criticism for this, but I'll say it anyways. I don't love Mad Max Fury Road because that whole movie, it <laughs> seems, is just nonstop. And I got bored of the action. Now, hear me out. I've only seen it one time. I need to rewatch it. Maybe I'll like it more. But that was one criticism I had about that movie. And this one, you're right. There are those pauses within the scenes. The the one that I noted in particular was when Pippin and Gandalf are sitting inside the walls of Minas Tirith behind the second gate, waiting for the orcs to breach it. And they're having this nice conversation about hope and just it's it's a peaceful moment. And I appreciate breaking up the action like that so that we do get a little bit of variety in those larger scenes. Yeah, that scene, uh, I think it's the one where they're essentially talking about the afterlife. And Gandalf is essentially describing heaven. And his words are contrasted with the pounding of the troll on the door. And the song for the movie, Into the West, it's actually incorporated into the movie's score at that moment. And I get goosebumps and maybe a little tear every time I see that part. It starts off when they first start talking. You hear the pounding in the background. But as Gandalf gets further into his sort of explanation of how death isn't the end, Everything sort of phases out and you just have his conversation, his soothing Ian McKellen voice and the music. And it, again, is a beautiful moment to break up some pretty intense action. Let's move into the bulk of our conversation because there are a lot of characters, as we've already pointed out. And so let's just go through sort of one by one. And so let's just start off. I've got Theoden at the top of my list. So what do you guys have to say about Theoden? I really, really love him. I talked a bit about how in Two Towers, it was... You had Theoden kind of fearing that he's a failure to his people because he was under uh, Saruman's spell for so long, and he's like trying to redeem his legacy. And when they go and confront Saruman, uh, Saruman calls him a lesser son of greater sires. And then you get a shot of his face, and you can see that it's everything that he's already been fearing himself. Like he doesn't even try to answer back because he's thinking the same thing. And I love how ultimately, in the end, after he has given his all, you see he's found peace when he tells Eowyn before he dies, I go to my father's, in whose mighty company I shall not now be ashamed. Just watching him come back from such a low place that he was in the beginning when we meet him in the Two Towers to becoming such a noble, kingly figure is really inspiring. As much as Aragorn helps Theoden to sort of get on his feet and become the leader that his people needed in the Two Towers and at the start of this film, I think he definitely benefited from Aragorn having to depart to go find the 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 dead men of Dunharrow. So he has this moment before the the big battle where he is able to address his people to be king in the absence of Aragorn to prove that hey in this instance I can lead my men. I'm going to fire them up and I'm going to be the king that I need to be. 
And that leads into the might and the bravery of the Rohirrim as they charge the orcs and the fear that they instigate in the orcs that we were talking about. And we'll, we'll talk about Denethor in just a second, but this is in stark contrast to Denethor, who at the same time is sacrificing himself and his son out of fear. So you have Theoden, who is taking charge, who is being the king that he is finally needing to be, contrasted with Denethor being a coward. Just something I just now thought about, both of those characters are introduced having just lost a son. I never thought about that before. That's true. Now that you compared the two. Yeah. There is a lot of compare and contrast with those two characters in this film. Uh, There's that scene that I was just talking about. There are other scenes where you're going back and forth between those two characters. I think there's another one where uh, Pippin actually sings to the steward, to Denethor, and he's stuffing his face with this, this rich food while there was a battle being fought outside. And it, there, that's another contrast between those two characters. And one more thing I loved about Theoden was that, you know, at the beginning of the film, he's, he says, why should we go to help Gondor when they didn't help us in our time of need at Helm's Deep? Why, why should we answer? Well, they haven't called at this point. Why should we go to them when they didn't come for us? But in the moment where it matters, when they do call for help, when Gondor does light the beacon, even unwittingly, he says, okay, let's do our duty as men to our fellow man. And so Theoden, Theoden has a lot of chances to sort of prove himself as a king and as a leader in this film. And so it, it really does finish the arc that was set up in Two Towers with him sort of fearing that responsibility and fearing that he wasn't everything that he needed to be as a ruler and then fulfilling everything he needed to be in this one. I think the only reason Theoden's arc isn't the best arc in this movie is simply because everybody's arc is perfect including his i mean it's it's also no no worse than everyone else in in any other movie he would have been the by far best character and most developed character because where he begins in this trilogy and where he ends is one of the most i think compelling kind of arcs i've ever seen of this man kind of just struck with grief especially when he discovers the death of a son and the desire to rightly rule his people is always there but there's always that doubt that creeps in that keeps him from truly, you know, leading. And then in the battle, when he does give his speech while Denethor is eating and he he is out there, the very front of his people, leading them into battle. There's just really, really great character moments for him. Like when he is speaking with Eowyn and he has essentially accepted his death. And so he's telling her, you know, you will be a good ruler because I, this is going to be a battle like no other, and we are, I'm essentially going to my death. I think that's the point where he's starting to truly be able to beat all of this doubt that he's wrestled with, because he knows that he's about to go and fight this battle, and he knows that what he's doing is right. And he has the benefit of knowing that he's leaving his people with a good ruler. It never feels cliche, and I think Bernard Hill is just a fantastic actor. So all of his scenes are wonderfully acted. And his death brings sort of everything full circle because he says, I know your face, Eowyn, when she approaches him after she has killed the Witch King. And I believe, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the first thing he says when he is released from the power of Saruman. Isn't that right? I believe so. Yeah. So that was something that I picked up on in this viewing was he he says the same thing. So in his rebirth and in his death, he is echoing the same sentiment and expressing his affection for essentially his daughter. Oh, I I had never noticed that. (laughs) It's really cool. 
Well, let's contrast Theoden talk with Denethor talk, which I don't have a whole lot to say about Denethor because he's just a coward and he, he makes me angry as a character <laughs> because he's so so much the antithesis of what Theoden is. But at the same time, you do pity him a couple of times because despite how he treats Faramir, he does seem genuinely broken up whenever Faramir returns from Osgiliath nearly dead, on the brink of death. In fact, he fears that he is dead. He's blind to the fact that he might potentially still be alive. And so he says, okay, this is all over. Everybody run, fear for your lives. And as for me and my son, we're going to go throw ourselves on a fire. (laughs) Real inspiring figure. (laughs) Yeah, really inspiring. And I I love that scene where he does shout to the city, everybody run for your lives, protect yourselves. And everybody just sort of stares around like, should we listen to that order? Should we take him seriously? And of course, it's responded to by Gandalf just coming and beating him with his staff (laughs) and then saying, okay, guys, this is real leadership. Let's step in and let's actually get some work done. I still remember the laugh in the theater when that happened. (laughs) I mean, Denethor... He's he's an awful person, but you do pity him because he did lose Boromir, and he does think he's losing Faramir. So uh, it, it's a difficult character because it's like him. You mentioned, Gabe, that both him and Theoden have lost a son. And so you see these characters start from the same point and then split in different directions. Yeah. As you're mentioning, this the scene where he sends uh, his, son, his son literally to his death or, or almost to his death, and he's just eating in like the most disgusting way possible as as a uh, pippin singing i mean billy boyd's a fantastic singer i love that scene and i think credit should really go to um john noble who can he plays such a despicable character and yet there are moments where we actually do feel deeply for him because of like just all the layers of pain and sadness in his performance i i don't think it's really any less compelling than theoden's story but you know as an audience member because we hate him so much i'm we're less interested in his character, but like Gabe said, I do think credit has to be given to John Noble. He's a, he's a really great actor with a really, really great voice. And yet, in, instead of just being an entirely despicable person from start to finish, he does have really great moments where you kind of strip back this jerk and you see this man who still loves his son. Even though the scene where he uh, thinks that he's seeing Boromir, even though that scene ends with me hating his guts, there is a moment of of sympathy in that scene where you you do see that he had this genuine, legitimate love for Boromir, and he's still not over this grief. Now, of, of course, you can't sympathize with him fully just because of the way he treats his other son. But there's there's little moments sprinkled throughout that keep his character from, I think, becoming just kind of this stereotype, oh, this is just the bad king, as opposed to Theoden's good king. He, I think it is a, a much more nuanced character than it could have been, and it is helped out by John Noble. You see the potential for so much more in Denethor because he, he, he loves his son, and you know the job of the steward of Gondor is to basically keep the city safe until the king, the heir of Isildur, returns to claim the throne. And then when that moment comes, he says, wait, hey, I don't want that. I, I want to stay in my position here. I'm, I'm happy sitting here. I'm happy eating all this food. And, you know, I have these two sons and this one's going to bring me this ring or that's what he wanted to happen. And everything just sort of comes crashing down around him. It almost makes you wonder uh, how his character would have panned out had he never had to be steward. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, whatever rank he was, you know, prior to that, 
he still had power. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the power that got to him because you know one of the biggest themes of the movies is just the idea that power corrupts humans, and so maybe without this power going to his head, he could have been a better father. That we that like you said, we do see the potential every now and then in his character. Agreed. Now going from Denethor, let's talk about Faramir, who again I don't have a whole lot to say about, but. It's just so sad watching this character who is so desperate to gain his father's approval. And he's willing to do anything aside from the wrong thing. We saw him in the Two Towers sacrifice taking in the ring to his father to do the right thing and let Frodo and Sam go complete their mission. But still here, he's he basically commits suicide going into Osgiliath just to try for the, the smallest bit to make his father proud. And that's that's heartbreaking. You see the scene... It was a scene you just mentioned where Denethor imagines he sees Boromir over Farmer's shoulder and Farmer says, you wish that our positions were switched. You wish that I had died and Boromir was still here with you. And of course, Denethor says, yes, that is what I wish. And you see the hurt in Farmer's head. It's like he was hoping he would say that and he'd get the comfort from his father that any normal person would expect from their father. Oh, no, no, no. Of course, I don't mean that. I still love you because you're still my son. But that's not at all what Denethor does. But still, rather than giving into hatred for his father, he says, okay, if I come back, I hope you think of me even just a little bit better. And that's so sad. It's, it's really, really sad. Yeah, that's the scene that always comes to my mind anytime Faramir is mentioned. I think when, when he says the line, if I should return, think better of me. I think that may be like the most amount of sympathy I ever feel for a character in any movie, just because of how genuinely sad it is to have lived your entire life in the shadow of your older brother. And what what I think was so interesting about that dynamic is that in a lot of movies uh, and stories in general, there there's often you know two people and oftentimes brothers, and one is loved and the other isn't, and the one that isn't is kind of he he grows. Spiteful? Yeah, spiteful for this person who kind of overshadows him. But in this one, it's the person whose shadow he's living in is also the one person, maybe not the one person, but the person he loves most and the person who loves him the most. And so to have that shadow gone, now he's essentially, he's always going to be compared to the shadow that was, so he's still being compared to his brother even though he's dead now. But now he no longer has that that one person that he can go to. The only family he now has is one that seems to hate him. Um, and so now he, he's still having to live under just this scornful eye of his father, but he no longer has his brother and best friend to be there with him. And so in that moment to hear that, yeah, this, your older brother, I, I wish he was here. I wish you were dead. It's just such a depressing moment. And as David Wenham as Faramir starts to tear up, I feel like I do every time as well. What y'all said. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thankfully, Faramir does have a happy ending. He ends with Eowyn, uh, both of them starting to show some affection for each other. So let's talk about her just a little bit. So the the first note that I've got written down is the scene where she is sort of encouraging Mary to go sharpen his blade and get ready for battle. And you can participate and you can make a difference just the same way I can. Because, you know, she has been struggling with this expectation of her as a woman to stay behind and to stay with the people and the children and all that kind of stuff. And she wants to, just like Mary, go out and fight. She wants to make a difference in that way. And so as she's telling Mary to to go and sharpen his blade and all that kind of stuff, 
Aomer says to her, you should not encourage him. And she responds, you should not doubt him. And it's clear, so, so clear that she is talking about not only Mary, but about herself. And so I love that Eowyn is this character with something to prove. And thank goodness both her and Mary get their moment to prove themselves and to to shine against the Witch King. Yeah, I like how that scene could so easily also be played as them talking directly to each other rather than talking about Mary. Yeah, for sure. They do both get their moments to shine. And then the moment after the battle, the big battle, where she is just sort of lying there unconscious and Aomer finds her, that is... <laughs> That was one of the moments that I felt the most heartbreak because we, we know, or at least we hope she's not dead. There was no reason to believe she was dead, but Aomer coming across this person who he had no reason to suspect she would be there and to find her lying unconscious in the middle of the battlefield, surrounded by dead bodies. You, you would think he would, he thinks that she's dead and the despair shown on Carl Urban's face as he holds Eowyn closer is just like the saddest, most depressing thing to watch in this movie. It almost doesn't even feel like acting. It looks like pure and raw emotion. It is. As he just as he sprints and screams. It's almost like complete sadness and utter shock. Like he's just look he's he's not even just looking directly in her at her. He's he's looking around at everyone else just screaming as if he can't even believe what's going on. And it's yeah, it's such a sad moment. It's I mean, it's made a little better knowing that he's gonna find out she's still alive, but even still, that, that first moment where he he realizes who it is. It's it's so sad. Yeah, thankfully we find out immediately after that she is still alive and okay. <laughs> um, we don't have to wait too long. But that moment is just that that absolute despair and heartbreak that Aomer shows on his face. That's one of the most powerful emotional moments of the film, I think. But again, Eowyn did get her moment in the sun. She does get to utter the the fantastic line, I am no man, as she stabs the Witch King in the face. And chop a fell beast head off. Yes, exactly. Chop, Not too bad either. <laughs> yeah, chop his uh, steed's head off. It, it's. I love how she's just a strong female character unapologetically, and she she fights for her right to fight. And I, 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 I love that about her character. And then again, that she finds comfort with Faramir. She does have the... Not a falling out with Aragorn, but they do have that confrontation where he's he's departing and she confronts him about it. And he says, you know, I, I realize that you have affection for me, but this between us, this is something that could never be. And she's obviously hurt, but she's she finds comfort at the end with Faramir as they hold hands and sort of just stand together overlooking the sunset, basically. And they've both lost father figures. So they, they do make an ideal match in that kind of way. I think one of the recurring themes, at least in my opinion of this movie, is that any individual character in this would have been the best, most well-developed character in any other movie. <laughs> because like Thayden, I just think that the arc she goes on from Two Towers here is such... It's one where you you can see how she changes as a character, but it doesn't feel scripted at all. It feels like the way a person would react and would grow in these real-life situations and I, I do think she's probably one of my, if not my very favorite, like, female protagonistic character. Because it's, she she embodies so much of what Tolkien would get across in all of his books, which is just that she wants to fight, but it's not about getting into battles because battles are fun, you know. It's about fighting for what you know is right, and if everyone else is out there giving their life for something, 
it doesn't feel right to not be doing it yourself and it's not a prideful issue it has it has nothing to do with her wanting to be one of the guys or wanting to prove herself to anyone it's because this is what she feels is the right thing to do she's not proving anything to herself or to her uncle or brother this is just the right thing to do for her and i just really really like her character a lot i agree let's move on to mary and pippin we talked about in the first film, Mary and Pippin are, are just sort of there. They're, they're fun characters. We like them, but they don't have a whole lot of growth in fellowship specifically. In Two Towers, we see them starting to move in a different direction where they are realizing the impact that this, this conflict is having on everything and how eventually, even if they went home right then and there, the Shire would burn if Frodo were to fail. And so they realize that this is a, a global and all of Middle Earth conflict and they want to do their part and so they sort of step their toes in when they accompany treebeard to take down isengard and then in this film they actually have to split up as we mentioned and they are so similar in so many ways they both end up offering their services to the king at hand out of different circumstances but they are both there to to make their mark in the the battle they both dress up they both have weapons they both get chances to do some action. And so they've gone from being fun-loving characters to being characters who are growing and realizing the impact that everything is having to characters who are actively participating in the conflict and, again, get their moments to shine. I like how in The Two Towers, that was where uh, Mary really came into his own and he's the one who was fighting to try to get the uh, ants involved. And here now, now that they're separated... Pippin can kind of no longer, he's, he's been sort of following along in Mary's shadow for the, for the films and now they can no longer rely on him. He has to step up and I like how he, like whether it was his fault or not, he kind of takes, he owns the responsibility for Barmir's loss and tries to kind of offer his services like as in payment to De- to Denethor when he sees like how grief stricken he is at his son's death. And then just how he just grows over the course of the battles where he saves Gandalf's life that he <laughs> gets to save Faramir. And then in the end, it's him taking care of uh, Mary on the field of battle. It's it's really touching. It is. And there's that moment after the, the battle of Pelennor Fields where Pippin actually finds Mary's cloak and the elfish pin. That's how he, he sort of knows that Mary was there. And presumably, he spends all day searching for Mary because the next shot we see him, it's nighttime, the sun is set, and he's still looking, and he finds him, and he says, no, I, I, I won't leave you. I'm going to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that that moment. And you, you really realize the bond between those two characters specifically because Pippin was so willing to just drop everything and spend all day looking for his friend who he knew was there somewhere. Mary and Pippin in this movie, they're almost my favorite thing about this whole movie and they're they're kind of the go-to examples that I use just in proving how much Jackson cares about characters because like we said they they started off as comic relief almost but they are given incredibly in-depth arcs like there is real character growth that they go on and we see it begin in Two Towers and now in Return of the King as they're separated Pippin definitely did follow in Mary's footsteps and, you know, he always did whatever he did, would follow his lead. But Mary also, he had him at his side knowing that whatever I'm going to do, I've got this guy with me. And so to see that their dynamic completely change to where now they're having to try to live and uh, navigate this war that they've gotten themselves into without that one constant that they've always had, 
it's crazy, you know, how, like y'all said, how similar they are, the parallels that even though they're separated, they no longer have that one person that they've always been with. They do the exact same thing anyways. They both pledge theirs, uh, themselves to the armies that they can, that they know are going to be in this one battle to end all battles. And so it's just, it's really cool, I think, to see these guys going from essentially nothing but the levity of the movie to giving this third film. They're not the only characters that provide it a heart. But I do think they, they do provide this movie with a lot of the heart. And I'm just really, really invested in them. And I think, obviously, a lot of it's just helped out because of the chemistry between Billy Boyd and Dominique Monaghan. But I, I think because the characters are given a lot more to do in this, you realize how good of an actors these guys are. Uh, it was obviously, or it was made obvious that they're funny and they've got great comedic timing. But there are moments that require legitimate acting ability. And I think they both are 100% in on all of their emotional moments. Yeah, one last thing for me to say about these characters, or about Pippin specifically, Billy Boyd's song that he gets to sing as the, the battle sort of starts. And Denethor has asked him to sing a song while he scarfs. And he's got a beautiful voice, for one thing. You don't really expect it, I don't think, but it's just such a sweet voice. And he sings about how... I've got the lyrics here. Home is behind the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadow to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. Mist and shadow, cloud and shade, all shall fade. And then he cries because he's singing a song from his home, and it's something that he hasn't seen in quite a long time, and he doesn't know if he's ever going to see it again. And so it's just this beautiful moment right on the, the, the cusp of war, and... Mary is realizing everything that is happening. All, all Everything comes to this. And this is the moment where basically everything becomes decided. So I love that song. I think it's a great moment. Let's move on. Let's go to Gandalf. Now, Gandalf doesn't have a whole lot of growth specifically here. He had his transition from gray to white in the last film. But he does have a lot of great moments. So what are your favorite moments with Gandalf in this film? And anything else you have to say about him? He's pretty consistent, consistently awesome all around for the entire film. I mean, Ian McKellen just has so much authority in his presence. I did like uh, when he stands up to Denethor the first time they meet and tells him, like, authority was not given you to, to deny the, reign, the turn of the king. It's a really great moment. And just all, the entire movie, he's so good. I love how Gandalf can mix sternness and compassion. So you have the scene where Pippin has become the fool of a took and has taken the Palantir from Gandalf as he sleeps and looks into it. And though Gandalf initially is sort of angry, I guess is the best word to just sort of describe his immediate reaction. He first and foremost settles down and makes sure that Pippin is okay. And Pippin cries and apologizes. And even though he's still a fool of a took, it's all about Gandalf comforting him and saying, hey, it's okay. Now, did you say anything while you were staring into the ball while he was looking at you? But I love that he mixes those emotions very, very well. He he is a compassionate character. Also, the, the moment after um the mouth of Sauron gives them the uh, mithril shirt, you just see the kind of the horror in uh, Gandalf's eyes that he's he's afraid he might have sent his friend to his death. And you're talking about the compassion. That, that moment stuck out to me. If I were to ever embark on any sort of journey and was able to choose one person to leave me, I would choose Gandalf just because of what you're saying, he knows when to be serious, but he's he's never 
at a, a ridiculous level of being overly serious. And to kind of follow up on the scene that you mentioned where Pippin grabs a plant here, the scene afterwards, even when he's still angry with Pippin and he's still like essentially chiding him, he does like, you know, he's, he looks at him and he says, he's a fool, but an honest fool. Like, like he's still covering <laughs> right. for Pippin. This, this is still his friend and he's making sure that he's not going to get into too much trouble, essentially. And then, you know, af- afterwards, he goes back to being angry. Like, of, of all the inquisitive hobbits, you are the worst. But it's never an unrealistic anger. And behind that anger, there's there's still always that compassion. And then, as for my favorite moment with Gandalf, it probably is the moment that we mentioned earlier, where he's giving Pippin words of comfort in what seemed to be potentially their last moment. You know, they, I feel like they both fully expected to not live through that. And just hearing Ian McKellen say what he says in that line, I would listen to any audiobook if it was Ian McKellen just <laughs> reading it, just because his his voice provides such like rich comfort. He's one of my favorite movie characters ever, and I, I think he's at his coolest in this film. Yeah, he gets his great fight scenes, and he gets great lines like uh, "Shadowfax, show him the meaning of haste," uh, all that good stuff. Uh, but let's go on. Let's go on to Aragorn, who is finally the king of the title. This isn't. Aragorn specifically, but I love the moment when Elrond has come and brings out the the reforged Anduril from beneath his cloak, and there's a swell in the music, and he he brings it out, and it's laying in its scabbard, and then Aragorn, of course, pulls it out and looks at the blade, and just a great moment where it's like the the essentially Isildur reuniting with the blade that smote Sauron in the first place, and so that that's a great moment. We mentioned his speech earlier, which I think is one of the best movie speeches of all time, at least war speeches, and it's a chance for him to truly show his kingship. The speech outside of the Black Gate, where he says, you know, there there are times when the courage of men may fall, today is not that day. And though we face impossible odds, and we could give up, today is not that day. Let, let's show that we men can stand our own and protect our land and our people and those that we care about. I just love that Aragorn finally gets to be the king in this movie. His his entire arc over the three films is really fantastic. It's like he was uh, he was w- worried about being king for the right reasons, and then he chooses to become king for the right reasons. And I just love how as everything's wrapping up, there's there's no time for like doubts or second guesses, and he he really has to just step up and do what needs to be done. Like just walking into this terrifying haunted hole in the ground. To, because that's what he has to do. He has to get these people yet to fight, and um, he just he gets so many epic moments. Like the as a he mentioned before, where he, where he says just for Frodo and charges. I mean, it's just goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, he's another character that shows a whole lot of compassion for the Hobbit specifically, and you get that moment at the end of the film when he has just been crowned king officially, and the the Hobbits, the four of them, stand there, and he says, "My friends, you bow to no one." And then everybody bows to the hobbits. And that that's one of the, the tear-jerking moments in the film, I think. At least it got me going just a little bit. <laughs> one of 700, yeah. Right, right, right. As I was about to say, there, there's so many scenes sprinkled throughout this, but most of the time it's just the ending in movies. But there are moments sprinkled throughout this whole film where I'm just a puddle. But he's he's essentially almost like a perfect person, but not in a way that's like poorly written. Like he, he began as the reluctant hero, but it wasn't the annoying kind of reluctant hero. He wasn't running from the responsibilities. He was he had like what you said, he was wanting to not be the king for the right reasons. Uh he had this very rational fear. 
when it's made evident to him that this is his destiny that he must take, he embraces it fully. You can see from the fellowship all the way into Return of the King, you can see him becoming more and more comfortable with leadership. Uh, he, he is the natural leader of the hobbits, but he still feels like a loner at points in the fellowship. And then, you know, in Two Towers, when he's pseudo-acting like leader, to the point to where Theoden says, you know, last I checked it was Theoden, not Aragorn, who is king of Rohan. And then now in Return of the King, when they're in Gondor now, they're in the place that he is to become king, and he fully embraces that role. And seeing him in the uh, the kingly armor at the end is just so awesome. Just because, you know, you know everything that went into letting this moment happen. All of the different things that had to happen to bring Gondor back, its rightful king. And I think Viggo Mortensen is just perfect in this. You watch the special features and you see how invested he was in making this character right and making him work. And all of, all of that translates to screen because to, I can't imagine anyone else playing Aragorn at this point. Me neither. We do need to move on. Let's go to Legolas and Gimli. So they they have gone on quite a journey over these films. Again, in Fellowship, they were very much like Merry and Pippin, where they were just sort of standby, and Legolas was the exposition machine. <laughs> and uh, he still is a little bit here, but you, you still get more of their relationship together as Legolas and Gimli here. Uh, you get funny moments with like Gimli sitting in Denethor's chair at the end of the film, smoking a pipe. and That still only counts as one. <laughs> right, right. The the battle itself, they're, they're keeping count again, competing against each other for kills. I love the moment when Legolas first shows up with Gimli and Aragorn with the, the ghost army. And uh, Aragorn just says, hey, Legolas, look over here. There's this giant elephant thing. And without question, Legolas just sort of sizes it up and then leaps onto it and takes the whole thing down within a matter of seconds. And he he doesn't question it. He just does it. I, I love that moment. <laughs> but then the Gimli and Legolas moment is towards the end. When Gimli says, never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. And Legolas says, how about side by side with a friend? And of course, Gimli responds, aye, I could do that. And that that just really shows how full circle they have come from being natural born enemies because dwarves and elves don't get along well. But you see them get closer and closer over the films and two towers, they start competing with each other. They share a horseback a lot of the time. And at this point, they they actually acknowledge each other as friends. Mm-hmm. Another very small but good moment from uh, Legolas is uh, when Aragorn is taking on the troll at the last battle in the at the Black Gates, and after he's been knocked down, it cuts a couple times back to Legolas where he's like desperately trying to fight his way to go and help his friend, and you just kind of see the fear in his eyes. It doesn't go really end up as much, but it's just a little, great little moment from Orlando Bloom as the character. Yeah, that's a moment I noticed today as well. It sort of quickens your heartbeat because you know that nothing's probably going to happen to Aragorn, but you see how he's literally at the whims of this troll and Legolas is desperately trying to get over to him to protect him, to save the king. And uh, yeah, it's a great moment. I think watching their uh, Legolas and Gimli's friendship grow across the trilogy is one of the most fun things in any movie. A line that I love is as Aragorn is um, leaving the Riders of Rohan to go and call the armies of the dead and Gimli shows up and Aragorn says, hey, you can't follow me. And Legolas is right behind him and says, have you learned nothing of the stubbornness of dwarves? <laughs> uh, at this point, they know each other incredibly well and they're able to joke with each other. But it, it's it's this, at that point, an unbreakable bond. 
in a movie that does feel so dire and so so important and so heavy i think uh one of my favorite things about the characters of legolas and gimli is the fact that they are able to interject a certain amount of lightness and humor into it but it never comes at the cost of the urgency of the movie it always feels natural and again it's, it's just it'd be weird to imagine anyone else in these roles just because of the chemistry the two of them have with each other and with Aragorn like this this trio to me is is my favorite film trio ever it, it's just a lot of fun watching them and thinking about their journey from whenever it essentially became the three of them at the end of Fellowship you know where they're just hunting orcs through the woods and now they're a part of this this greatest battle in Middle Earth history almost and again it's it's the three of them in the midst of it let's move on to Frodo and Sam now Primarily Sam. I love that Sam is not a brave person by default, right? He, he's, he's a hobbit. He's not used to stepping outside of his own garden. But here he is, risking life and limb, diving headfirst to fight a spider, <laughs> charging a tower full of orcs, all to protect his friend. So he's not brave by default, but when it comes to standing up for Frodo, he'll do anything. He'll put himself at any amount of danger in order to protect his friend. And that's actually the same with any of the hobbits, really. It's Merry and Pippin, we, we've talked about them already. But when it comes to protecting their friends and making a difference to protect their home and their people, they're able to put on any amount of bravery. And I, I, I just really enjoy watching their growth in that way. And, you know, Sam and Frodo in particular are so close. And you see these moments where Sam sort of sacrifices himself in so many ways. He he offers Frodo the food and drink when when there's not enough for both of them. And when Frodo has been stung by Shelob and is passed out and Sam presumes him dead, he says, Don't leave me here alone. Don't go where I can't follow. He just he just wants to be with his friend. He wants to help him out and be the best companion he can be. And then again on the slopes of Mount Doom where he he offers to carry Frodo because the the burden of the ring is so great and it so weighs heavy on Frodo's neck. And that's one of those classic moments of cinema, I think, where Sam says, if I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Uh, just a classic scene. So I, I love watching Sam's dedication to Frodo in particular. And, you know, Frodo has a particular moment where after the ring has been dropped into the flames, Gollum has died and Frodo is hanging there on the edge of the cliff. And there's this moment where you think that he might actually let go and let himself die. Uh, and Sam encourages him, don't you let go, don't you let go. But I think, I, I was trying to get into Frodo's head in that moment. And I think part of it was maybe shame because he did fall victim to the corruption of the ring. And he did almost pull an Isildur and just walk out with the ring on his finger. Possibly out of exhaustion. He's been through so much over these many months these three films and it it's just this this really depressing moment where frodo is hanging there and i think you see the 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 debate he's having in his head should i let go or should i make the effort to let sam rescue me so that that's a, a sobering moment i i've talked a lot now so you guys one of you step in their whole arc in this movie of them together it's one of the most just tragic arcs it's almost like the low point of the film, not in terms of quality, but just in terms of every time we revisit them, the closer they get to Mordor, the more of a burden the ring is to Frodo. And so 
they they already start out in a less than ideal way at the beginning where they're you know they're close and they feel like it's night but it's it's just like midday because of how dark it is and clearly from the opening scene the ring has already taken a such a toll on frodo one of the lines i love in this movie is whenever um sam says you know like we should have enough and frodo asks for what and he says for the journey home talking about their food supply and then at the very end whenever he he says to frodo you know i i don't think there will be a journey home he is pretty much one of my favorite characters in any movie ever just because of his willingness to like what you were saying chad his willingness to to do whatever it takes to help frodo along in this journey and one of the many many scenes that i was referencing earlier where i'm it's inevitable that i will cry is the scene where frodo tells him to go home and sam just sits down back against the wall and starts sobbing because he's done almost nothing wrong throughout this whole film and the two prior He's, you know, been the watchful eye over him. He's rightly been suspicious of Gollum. And regardless of everything that he's done, he hasn't been able to beat Gollum, who is a manipulator. And he just starts crying in this moment. And he gets to me every time. Yeah, Sam is is my favorite character of, of the, all three films. And you all have mentioned almost all my favorite moments. But I like how just the wonderful innocence and humility that he brings to his character. He always... He always he doesn't want the spotlight. He always kind of positions himself in the background, and he'll just whenever there's a need, he'll step up and do what needs to be done, especially for Frodo. And just the moment where he thinks Frodo's died, he, he without hesitation he he takes the ring and he's going. He was he was intending to finish the quest, or like he'll as you said mentioned he'll charge into a right up at a, a gigantic spider if that's what it needs to uh, save his friend, or if needs be he'll carry him up the side of a mountain. But there's never a hint of you know like pride or in his character. Such a wonderful, humble person who will just do what needs to be done. Yeah, and in those moments when when he does charge in against Shelob or against the orcs, it's complete bravery too. You don't see any sort of hesitancy. It's just a straight up. This is what I've got to do, and I'm going to put on all the bravery I have within me. And you can tell he it. It's like he doesn't fear at all in those scenes because he is so determined to help. Now, sort of closing off our character section, I do just want to mention a couple of moments with the Fellowship as a whole. There's a moment after the ring has been dropped in and it has been destroyed at this point where the tower has fallen, the eye is gone, the orcs have crumbled, and everybody cheers. You see Pippin's shouting for Frodo and he's cheering for Frodo in that moment. And everybody is celebrating. And then Mount Doom explodes. And everybody assumes that Frodo and Sam have now died with the explosion of the mountain. And so it, it immediately changes from celebration to despair and heartbreak. And it, it's just this, this wonderful contrasting moment that it's not, I wouldn't call it subtle, but without having to say any words, you, you are able to see so clearly the emotions that everybody's feeling where they're happy that the task has been completed and that the enemy has been defeated. But then they also fear for their friends in that moment when they think they have lost them. What I love about that moment is that it didn't have to be in this movie at all. You know, Frodo doesn't die. We don't go for an extended period of time with those characters thinking he did. But I do think that its addition to the movie helps you understand, like, the relationships of these characters that much more. To where it doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like movie characters. 
as Pippin, you know, is shouting Frodo, and then all of a sudden you just see the explosion, and he's still, he's now on his knees, and he's just in tears, you know, saying Frodo, assuming they lost him. It, it shows the genuine care they have for each other. And thinking about it, they Pippin and really most of them haven't even seen Frodo since the ending of Fellowship. But the bond they created with each other in that one was so strong that it's still... And obviously they knew each other prior to becoming the Fellowship. That this moment where it feels as if you lost a friend just hits all of the Fellowship in such a powerful way that they just beat the armies of darkness. You know, this is absolutely a moment for celebration. But because of the closeness of this fellowship, that overcomes their joy in the moment. Because regardless of the fact that, yes, we did win, it came at the cost of, you know, one of everybody's best friends. And I'm I'm so happy it was Jackson who directed these movies just because of how much he cares about characters and the fact that he's willing to put in moments like that in the film. And then on the other side of the coin, you have one of the, the epilogue scenes after everything is said and done, where it's actually immediately following that scene where the Eagles have picked up Sam and Frodo and Frodo wakes up in the the bed. Everything is bright. It's white. Gandalf is at the end of the bed and they just start laughing. And one by one, the fellowship is reassembled. That's all it is, is saying names and laughing and celebrating with each other. It's just this moment of pure joy. And it's, it's a beautiful moment. I, that's a scene that people like to make fun of because it is a scene just featuring laughing taken out of context yeah it is a funny scene but i i laughed during that scene just because i'm so happy for the characters and like you mentioned james this is the first time this company has been together 100 percent since the fellowship of the ring so however much time has passed since then this is the first time they've been able to get together without fear for the others lives and without the burden of this great task ahead of them it, it's just a it's a great scene i, I love the fellowship having their moment at the end of the film. Yeah, and back to the character about just Frodo. I think he gets a lot of unfair hate among fans. There's a lot of people who, say, who kind of hate on Elijah Wood's performance, but I think it is kind of a thankless character as far as the story goes. You know, he, he kind of does fail in the end, but I think that's not taking into account just the courage it took to, first of all, you know, volunteer in the beginning, and then as he goes and he feels the ring like eating away at his soul every step of the way yet he keeps on going and i think elijah wood's performance really sells just all the pain and despair he's going through and i think the fact that he that he doesn't stop that he he completely spends himself just every bit of strength he has to try and save his home is so so powerful i've never gotten the hate for his character or or his performance for that matter um i think that this is probably even though this is my least favorite film in terms of seeing Frodo, it's it's not a negative to the film. It's just because of how sad it is to see this character who is so energetic and full of life in the Fellowship, just brought to the point of depression almost. But I, I think in terms of acting, this is this is the best performance of the trilogy he gives because I almost feel exhausted myself during these scenes. You know, as as he's almost not unconscious, but as he's almost completely out of it, just trudging up this mountain, he looks like he's just going to collapse and there's almost nothing keeping him up. And there's nothing but sheer exhaustion on his face. I feel I feel tired as a viewer watching it just because of how real it looks. Not much else can be said. I think that 
that the performances across the board are fantastic in this film. I don't think there's a weak link anywhere. All three of us have read the books and all three of us have plenty of places to make criticism if we had criticisms to make. And I just don't know if I have any, at least none that are worth mentioning in any capacity because everything is so well put together and all the characters are so well portrayed and well acted and well written that I, I just can't complain about any of it. So let's go ahead and move on. Let's briefly talk about the music. I, I'd love to spend a full episode talking about the music in this film and across the trilogy, but we just don't have time. So let's do it. <laughs> we have Howard Shore back. Bless him. We did watch the extended edition. So we do have the fully updated score that he composed specifically for the extended editions of the films which is fantastic. You don't have a whole lot of composers who would be willing to put in that amount of extra effort to make a fully finished product like the extended editions are. We have our returning themes. We have new themes uh, for like Numenor and Minas Tirith. We might have heard glimpses of it in Two Towers, but we, we hear the Numenor and Minas Tirith theme in all of its glory in this one many times. The return of the Men of Rohan theme, and you have the Fellowship theme returning, like I mentioned at the Black Gate earlier. And as the battle starts, and as Frodo and Sam are closing on the pit at Mount Doom, and we get the Fellowship theme actually during the laughing scene, like I mentioned. And then you even get Return of the Eagles theme when they they come and they take place in the battle at the Black Gate and come to rescue Sam and Frodo. And the Shire theme is so beautifully sprinkled throughout the film at those key moments when they are thinking back of home and at the end of the film when when everybody's bowing to the hobbits at Minas Tirith the Shire theme oh. plays there too and it just all all goes back to you know in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit and that's sort of always been the focus of these stories while that essential beginning does split off whether you're talking the hobbit story or you're talking the lord of the rings story it all started with a hobbit and i i just love that the Shire theme has always been sort of central to these movies. Are there any couple of musical moments that you guys want to mention? Uh, yeah, just the, the Minas Tirith theme is so epic. I could just watch a loop of Gandalf and Pippin riding up through the different layers of the city with that music just blaring. I mean, I could watch that for hours. <laughs> it's so exciting. Then there's the uh, Minas Morgul theme is super creepy, as is the... Uh, Carathungal or Shelob's Lair music, it's very just it gets under your skin, which it's supposed to. And another moment, James had mentioned a part where the, the theme from Into the West had come in. Another time I heard it was as uh, Sam starts carrying Frodo up the side of the mountain, you can hear the theme, the, the main whatever musical part from Into the West start coming into the score as well there. Yeah, I, that moment right there that Gabe mentioned is just such such an emotionally powerful moment and the music helps out so much i don't i don't know of any other movie series where the music it, it doesn't just help out the movie i feel like it's an integral part of the story it doesn't even feel like it's something being played in the background it is it is innately a part of this film and just a couple more of the moments that stand out to me uh i think before they start climbing there's a moment where it's not the Shire theme. I don't even think we've heard this theme until this point. But you just hear this soft flute playing as they're traversing up the uh, Mount Doom. And it's one like one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. And then, to me, if we're going to talk about musical moments in The Lord of the Rings, the uh, the lighting of the beacons <laughs> is just 
it's just literally a series of like 10, 15, however many beacons lighting up. We're literally just seeing shot after shot of fire getting, you know, lit up. But it's, this music manages to make that one of the most epic sequences ever. It's hope. Yeah, I mentioned the lighting of the beacons music as well as uh, one of my standouts. And really any of the wartime music, I think, is fantastic. He almost uses music like a, a punctuation, just that, that extra added thing that mix in the film to just make that scene that much better. Like I said, we could go on and on and on about the music, but we're sort of running low on time. I think we would all agree that this is Howard Shore's sort of magnum opus, the trilogy as a whole. And thankfully, he was able to expand on many of the the, the themes that we hear here in these films in the Hobbit trilogy. And so those are worth listening to as well. It's just hard to beat Lord of the Rings... Howard Shore, the complete recordings, if you can get your hands on them, are the best thing you can get for enjoying the music here. So let's sort of go to our closing section. Let's go to themes and relevance. I'll start us off this time. So something that I don't remember who hinted at this earlier, um, but the theme of absolute power corrupting absolutely. At the start of the film, we actually get Gollum's origin story because at the start of the film, he's just Smeagol. And he's out on a fishing trip on his birthday with one of his best friends. And his friend goes overboard trying to catch a fish and finds the ring. And right from the moment, even when he first sees the ring, when Gollum, when Smeagol first sees the ring, he's immediately taken by it. He immediately becomes captive to it. And he fights and kills his friend. And that was the first time he'd seen it. So right from the beginning, maybe Smeagol was particularly susceptible because I mean, we see in... Gollum's dual personality that Smeagol is the weaker personality of the two but we see even in a time of happiness with a friend the ring corrupts there's even a moment later in the film when Sam is briefly tempted after he has rescued Frodo from the orcs uh, after the whole Shelob ordeal Sam had taken the ring from Frodo so that the orcs didn't get it and he pulls it out of his pocket and he just sort of holds it in his hand for a moment and he he doesn't struggle in any sense of the word where he he like yells at Frodo about it but you see him sort of reluctant to hand it over so even a character as innocent and as strong as Sam is tempted and then you mentioned this earlier James at the end of the film Frodo fails he does he he stands there he holds the ring over the edge of the cliff and decides nope the ring is mine and he starts walking away and he puts it on so I don't think that's supposed to show a weakness in Frodo's character. It's it's showing how absolutely corrupting the ring itself is. Even a character like Frodo, even a character like Sam, and all these people who have been tempted by the ring over time, it's impossible to resist. It's an absolute power, and that is why it must be destroyed, because there is no resisting it once you've gotten your hands on it. Yeah, just the power of the ring. What I think that helps with... Um... With the story, it helps get across one of the themes that I think was very important to Tolkien, which was friendship and camaraderie. You know, with as brave and heroic as any of all of these heroes are, by yourself, no one is truly incorruptible. Um, and it it took Frodo being there to take the ring from Sam, and it took you know Gollum falling off of the precipice to keep Frodo from keeping the ring. There are going to be a very few situations in which, you know, doing something by yourself is the right thing to do, you know. So just this idea of brotherhood and friendship and the the necessity of others 
to accomplish goals. I think that was something important to Tolkien because in all of his writings, it's such a constant, you know, with there's there's the thirteen dwarves with Bilbo and Gandalf, and there's the fellowship, the nine of them. Uh, and, and even in his other works like the Silmarillion and the Children of Hurin, there's always some sort of bond or brotherhood. And to me, that just, that just says that this is something that Tolkien thought was very important for humans. And it certainly parallels with the characters of Aragorn and Theoden, who, who are rulers, but they put so much faith in their people and in their, their citizens of their kingdom, however you want to phrase it. They don't rely on their own strengths. They rely on the strengths of their, their collaboration in contrast with a character like Denethor, who wants the power for himself, and Saruman, who wants the power for himself and falls victim to that. And he, he realizes that uh, Sauron does not share power. And so you, you get those, those parallels where the ring is an absolute power, and rather than taking absolute power for themselves and becoming corrupt, like the power of the ring, or like Saruman, or like Denethor, Theoden and Aragorn are able to to put their faith in others and not have absolute power. And, and even though it's not from this movie, I think a line that sums up exactly what you're saying is at the end of Fellowship when Gimli says, so the Fellowship has failed, and Aragorn says, not if we hold true to each other. You know, Aragorn understood the importance of of this bond that they've made with each other and the importance of sticking together and not abandoning and the need of the others. Agreed. What else do we have? On top of the the theme of everyone, you know, coming together, I like how Tolkien wrote wrote the stories, just where everyone, every character has their small role to play. They they all have a choice to do the right to to make the right thing, and whether they win or lose, they have to keep fighting because that's the right thing to do in this moment. And you see really strongly, especially in this one, his belief in like providence. He he created the word eucatastrophe, which is like a which basically means like a fortuitous accident. And you saw his belief that if you do the right thing, good will come of it. Maybe not now, maybe way down the road. And I think it, it's, you see that in, a, especially in the character of Gollum, where back, way back in Fellowship, after uh, Frodo says it was a pity we, we didn't kill him, that uh, Bilbo didn't kill him. And then Gandalf says, uh, he gives his line, and then he says, uh, there may come a day when the pity of Bilbo will rule the fates of many. And then he says, for even the wisest cannot know the end. And you see that Bilbo's choice of showing mercy eventually saved the world essentially and that was in spite of uh Gollum's evil in spite of his betrayals the choice to do a, a good thing way back there ultimately saved many and i think that's that's a that's a, a thing we should always be reminded of you know we we don't know what's going to happen we we always have to do the right thing uh where we are going off of that uh there's this idea of not abandoning hope even when you have good reason to Time and time and time again in this movie and in, across the whole trilogy, you have characters acknowledging that they're against impossible odds, that they're walking into their deaths, but they pursue forward anyways. You have Theoden with the Rohirrim at Minas Tirith. You have Aragorn leading his men at the Black Gate. You have Sam and Frodo even on the slopes of Mount Doom where they realize, you know, there's not going to be a return trip. But still, we must press on. We still have come to do a task or the others. We have we have a job to do in distracting the armies of Mordor in order to give Frodo and Sam safe passage to the mountain. 
And so time and time again throughout this this film and through this trilogy, you have these characters making sacrifices and going into these impossible situations and making sacrifices for friends. Again, Aragorn says for Frodo and leads the charge, followed immediately by Merry and Pippin. The two least qualified people to be there <laughs> are leading the charge with Aragorn. And again, you have Sam sacrificing food and drink throughout the film so that Frodo may have it instead. The one who is carrying the weight of the ring, the burden of the ring, so that he may have that nourishment. That sort of goes hand in hand where you have a task to do and you're willing to do whatever it is to to do that ultimate good task. Not to draw this out too long. I don't envy your editing job ahead of you. <laughs> just uh, One last real quick thing was just you mentioning um, the idea of hope in the trilogy. It reminds me of something from the special features. And to anybody who hasn't watched the special features in the extended editions, they are hours and hours long, but it is worth it, I guarantee you. Uh, you'll wish there were more because they're almost as entertaining as the movies themselves. Part of it, they go over... One of the things that Gabe was mentioning earlier, the idea of the U catastrophe, which is, it's essentially the opposite of a catastrophe, where, you know, in a, in a catastrophe, it's everything is going good, and then out of nowhere, something horrible happens. Whereas, you know, a U catastrophe is the exact opposite. Things couldn't be possibly bleaker, and then out of nowhere, something amazing happens. And Tolkien used that to show that hope is rewarded, even when all seems lost. There's always going to be hope. And Tolkien said that the worst place a person could possibly find themselves in is despair. Because to Tolkien, despair was the polar opposite of hope. Despair has given up on any chances of hope. It's essentially exactly where Denethor was. He had fallen into despair at the apparent death of Faramir. And he had abandoned any sort of hope for the future. And we see the kind of end that that character meets. So I, I just think that this idea of all of the ideas that we brought up, they all go hand in hand in telling the story, the idea of keeping together with this hope in mind uh, and never abandoning the task at hand because of that hope. All of these different themes just all coalesce into just a, a, an amazing story from start to finish across this trilogy. Yeah, and also on the opposite end, it's... It's the villain's evil choices and actions that lead directly to their death. Like how it's it's Saruman's cruelty to Wormtongue or Gollum's greed in the moment. And then Saruman, it was his kind of his, I mean, Sauron, it was his lust for power in combining all his strength into this one ring that ultimately led to his downfall. It's it's the the, good, the character's good choices that lead to their victory. It's, it's on the opposite end, their evil choices that lead to their destruction. I think that's a solid point. And I do have one last thing to say before we give our final thoughts. Speaking of despair and avoiding it, there are moments when these characters are in moments of actual ultimate despair, but they find beauty in those moments. You have Sam pointing out a star through the gap in the smoke. He says, there's beauty out there that no shadow can touch. And then Faramir, when he gets with Eowyn towards the end of the film, Eowyn is fearing the cold and she's almost depressed at the things that have been going down. This is right after Theoden has died. She has almost been killed herself and she's healing. And she mentions the cold and Faramir just says, the cold in the air is just the damp of the first spring rain. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to look at this as a result of something so negative. This could be the start of something positive. And I don't believe that the dark times will go on forever. And then one last one, you have Sam and Frodo right after they have tossed the ring in the mountain and they are picturing the Shire. They're imagining home while they are 
sitting on the side of a volcano that is in the middle of erupting. And so in all these instances of these bleak moments, they are looking for beauty. And I think that is equally as important as all the other things we have talked about. So final thoughts. Let's close it off, guys. What do you have to say? For me, this is the trilogy as a whole is, in my my opinion, I know I've said it several times, it's it's the pinnacle of human achievement in cinema, in my opinion. It's just, it's nearly flawless in almost every aspect. The idea that it works is just astounding based on the source material that you could condense this into a film. Although, as long as it is, it's weird to say condense. But of the three, this is also my favorite, just because I I do enjoy the closure. I think it's the most epic. It's where everything leads to this moment. All of the characters' arcs that were begun in the first film are brought to fruition in this one. I I will defend its 27 endings all the <laughs> way to my grave. I, I know that people think they, they become tedious, but you know, you've come on such a long journey that they're needed. So for me, I've never really been as emotionally affected by a movie as much as the ending of this. And the conclusion of this film is essentially, it's the conclusion of the whole trilogy. And it feels different than the ending of other movies because it feels like you really did just, you know, close the chapter on something incredibly important. And it, it almost transcends being a simple movie. And it's just, it's been an incredibly important film for me. And it probably is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that James said. And just as a piece of filmmaking, just from directing, cinematography, the writing, the acting, production design, it all comes together in this incredible, flawless whole that is that is just a, like a perfect cinematic experience. You feel the whole gambit of emotions and it just sweeps you up in this epic story of good versus evil. And you know, it just reminds me of the value of courage and self-sacrifice and friendship, loyalty, and it's just such a powerful story with, with, as we mentioned before, all these fantastic characters. There's, there, there's someone for that anyone in the world can, you can, there's, you can, if you, you can find a character in here to connect with. It's just such a powerful story that is told as well as it possibly could be. I agree with everything that's been said. I don't really have a whole lot to add on to that. <laughs> It, it's so much more than just a fantasy film. It's so much more than an action film or a war film or anything like that. This is just a great story and it's masterful filmmaking, masterful storytelling, beautiful composition in the case of Mr. Howard Shore and just across the board, one of the ultimate achievements in cinema, like you were saying, James. And so if somehow you have made it through this episode and have not seen <laughs> these movies, I, I don't think that's the case with anybody who's listening, but let this be an encouragement for you to go out and rewatch this trilogy because I have certainly enjoyed going back and rewatching everything. And I'm looking forward to going through the Hobbit trilogy now, maybe not on the podcast. We'll see, but uh, I haven't seen that trilogy in its entirety just yet. So I'm looking forward to diving back into middle earth in a, in a sort of different setting. So with that, that is the end of the official 35th episode of Cinescope. Thank you guys so much for being on the show with me. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Definitely. Contact for the show, you can find it at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Remember to go onto iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe, and also go share the show with your family and with your friends. Find us on Anchor, the link is in the show notes, or you can download the app from the iOS or Android App Store, and you can find Cinescope through there. If you have feedback or ideas, you can email at the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. 
And if you're interested in co-hosting or have a movie that you'd like to talk about for 45 minutes plus, make sure to let me know and I'll, uh, I'd love to get you onto the show. Now, James, where can people find you online? We have a, a website, underratedpodcast.com, that you can visit to find all of our episodes. Uh, me personally, I'm on Facebook as James Hamrick. I'm always willing to talk about movies pretty much any time. And I'm also on Letterboxd as J.L. Hamry. Uh, it's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, I write reviews for most of the newer movies that I'm seeing from now on. And I'm, I'm mainly using it as a way to keep up with however many movies I've seen. I think I'm at like 715 right now. But it's a fun way to keep up with different people that you may listen to or talk about movies with. What about you, Gabe? As he said, you can uh, find our podcast underrated. And um, also, same, I'm also on Letterboxd as uh, Gabriel Green. It's a re- really fun site um, where I log er, and review most of the films I see. And uh, our la- the latest episode we did was on Armageddon. And also we did a mini-sode with uh, Chad on Beauty and the Beast, as he said. So yeah, check out our podcast. Yeah, definitely go over to iTunes and check out Underrated and Give them some love over there, too, because they have a very positive approach to film criticism, just like we do here on Cinescope. Now, best place to find me online is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And you know what? I'm on Letterboxd, too. I don't review films necessarily because I've sort of drifted away from star ratings, but I do log the films that I watch. So you'll be able to at least follow that much. So... I'll put that in the show notes. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. It's been a monster of an episode, but it's been a lot of fun. So thank you, Gabriel and James. It's been awesome having you on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 35. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 36. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 